Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we thank You that in the fullness of time You sent forth Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of sin and the curse of the law. We thank You for His birth, a miracle in itself. We thank You for His obedient life, for His suffering, for His blood shed on the cross to forgive our sins. We thank You for His resurrection from the dead to inaugurate a new creation and to bring in His kingdom. We thank You for His ascension to Your right hand and His present reign over all things as He has poured out His Holy Spirit and continues to work through His Spirit and through the Word in the world. And today we especially thank you that you have promised to send your son again at the last day. That the same Jesus who ascended into heaven will come from heaven. He will return to us still clothed in human flesh. But whereas he came before in hidden humility, he will come again in public glory to raise the dead, to judge us all and to send us to our eternal destination. We thank you, O God, for the sure hope we have of resurrection life in the new heavens and new earth, the sure hope we have of eternal life and joy in your presence because of all that Christ Jesus has done for us. He is the King we come to worship today. We look ahead to His final coming and the consummation of His reign, the consummation of all of your purposes when all things are summed up and gathered up in Him. Oh great God, may this future hope we have direct our steps in the present. We cry out, our God reigns. Our God is victorious. Our God is faithful. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. To God the Father be the glory. With God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. From eternity to all eternity. Amen. Our lesson for today is going to come from Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis 3 verses 14 through 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain, You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's true, it's right and good. Father, I pray now for the power of your Spirit to come, and I pray that your Spirit would help us be receptive to your Word and receive it by faith. We want your Word, Father, um, to produce an abundantly good harvest in us. 
We need your word to make us wise. We need your word in so many ways. So would you come now and minister to us, Father, and do mighty things through the power of your spirit, through your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Okay, so today we are back in a passage um, I preached from a few weeks ago. Genesis 3, this is a very familiar story that almost everybody here probably has heard before. This is a classic Sunday school story. I said last time that uh, Genesis, particularly the first three chapters of the Bible, it's foundational for us. So almost everything we believe as Christians can really be found here in these first three chapters of this book. We're going to look again at um, our passage. What we saw last time is really that Genesis 3 gives us the gospel in miniature forms. All the essential parts of the gospel message are all right here. So today we're going to look at this passage again to understand more gospel basics and what we can learn about the reality of our sin and the reality of God's gracious redemption. We're going to see that the story of Genesis 3, it's really all of our stories as well. The story of the fall is not only our story because in humanity all fell in sin in Adam, but because our greatest problem, our greatest struggle in humanity uh, is the same as our first parents. The temptation to sin incited by Satan and the struggle to live by faith in a world where we daily have to experience the effects of the fall, sin and suffering. The temptation narrative we read in Genesis 3, this narrative is reenacted on a regular basis in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships with people, with our friends, our coworkers. There's not a day of life, right, where we don't have to feel and live with the reality and the consequences of what we read here today. The story of the fall also teaches us what God's work looks like in our lives and the lives of God's people. It tells us that our only hope is found in the same place where our first parents put all their hope in the grace and mercy offered to sinners by the creator of heaven and earth. So this ancient story we're going to look at today tells us why God's work of rescue and restoration, this is supremely good news for us. The story teaches us that the plot of our story uh, has more to it than just sin and suffering and struggle. We'll see the climax of all of our stories as God's people is how God has come to save his people, to deliver us from evil like we pray every week and to lead us back to our eternal home, an eternal Eden, a place that can never be touched again by Satan, a paradise that can never be lost. Okay, so let's turn now and look at the details of what we just read, and let's jump into this passage and unpack more of the rich truths that we see here about the gospel message. Last time we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, we talked about the dynamic of sin and temptation and how we all face sin and temptation in very similar ways to Adam and Eve in the garden. And last time we also began briefly to talk about the immediate aftermath. After they sin, what is life like right after the fact? So this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last time and talk more about the effects of sin on the man and woman and God's gracious movement towards them by his grace and his mercy. So last time we said right away, as soon as they sin, there's several immediate consequences of our first parent's choice, consequences that we also, every one of us, are going to experience on a very regular basis. We said last time that the first experience of sin for the man and woman uh, is this entrance of shame. 
before they sinned, we said that Adam and Eve had this relationship with each other and with God that was marked by deep mutual trust and intimacy. Uh, the writer of Genesis sums it up with this phrase, naked and not ashamed, for the kind of relationship they had with each other and before God. But we see right away that relationship transforms in a very tragic way. So what Adam and Eve do right after they sin? We're told that suddenly they think there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them being naked before each other, and so they get to work right away to make these makeshift set of clothes for themselves. Of course, there's nothing sinful about them being naked in front of each other as husband and wife. They're the only people on earth. But this profound sense of spiritual guilt they felt after they sinned began to manifest itself right away through the experience of shame. They felt like they needed to cover uh, themselves. They needed to cover over their guilt and their shame. And so what did they do? They began to make these clothes for themselves. What we're going to see is this first action of them clothing themselves is really a series of missteps that we see them do in Genesis 3. These series of actions that they do all can be boiled down to the man and woman attempting to run from the truth about themselves. That because of sin, they stood guilty now before God. And they desperately needed God's grace and His forgiveness They were running from the truth about the fact they got into this mess that was bigger than themselves. They just couldn't fix on their own, and they desperately needed God to get them out. Notice another immediate effect of sin is uh, fear. Do you see this? God calls out to Adam. He wants Adam to recognize that he's lost and that he needs God's help. So how does Adam respond? He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. So Adam's experience of his sin has now led from shame and guilt to now this experience of deep fear. The Bible calls us to fear God, which means we're to listen to him and obey him and treat him with reverent respect. Rich preached a great sermon on this about a month ago. This immediate experience of fear is transformed into something very different. This is a fear that involves the man and the woman running from God. A fear of them becoming clean before God, of being exposed. It's a fear that involves them running from the truth, again, about their own lostness and their sin. This fear doesn't lead Adam to humbly confess his sin before God and cast himself on God's mercy, but instead it involves them moving away from God and trying to stay hidden. And again, this experience of Adam and Eve is something we all know, right? In In a variety of ways. All of us. On a regular basis, we make futile attempts to hide. Our flesh wants us to hide from God, hide from each other, and we work so hard so often to hide our sins, to hide our failures. Often in the Christian life, we can take on a spiritual resume kind of mindset. You know what it's like when you give someone a resume, right? Only present the best parts of yourself. And you do your best to make yourself look better than you are in reality. Think about nobody in their right mind would hand someone a resume about the fact that you got fired from a job or that you're bad at something in particular, uh, even if that's the truth. No one, I hope, has a section of his or her resume entitled, Ways I've Screwed Something Up at Work, right? Because of our guilt and because of our shame and our fear of exposure and rejection, we can slip into the same kind of spiritual mindset. When it comes to our faith, we often work so hard to hide our sin, 
to hide our struggles from others because deep down we're afraid that others will see parts of us that we are very ashamed of. Places that we hope are going to stay hidden. Fear being exposed is what drives us to settle so often for superficial relationships where we're really not very honest with each other and where we constantly try to accentuate the positive things in our lives that we want to downplay our sins, we want to downplay our struggles. One of the many merciful things we see God do in our passage is he does not allow Adam and Eve to stay hidden. He wants to lead them, lead them to the place where they confess the truth about their sin, not so that he can shame them or condemn them, but so he can magnify his grace by saving them, by transforming them. This deadly spiritual triple threat of guilt, shame, and fear, all these things speak to us in the same way that they speak to our first parents. They try to convince us that we're really just better off if we stay quiet, if we stay hidden regarding our sin. At the risk of confessing our sin is far greater than any possible benefit that comes from it. People of God, I want you to consider this morning, what are the sins in your life that you really hope stay hidden? What are the ways you work at hiding things about yourself from God by never praying about these things, by never confessing them? What are the ways you try to hide from other people? And why is this? Why, why is it that you feel like you can't be honest about these things? Okay, what's another immediate effect of Adam and Eve's sin? Notice also how they respond to God's questions. God comes to them to question them about their sin. And notice what they say. God questions the man first. He says uh, to him, where are you? He wants the man again to, uh, to assume responsibility. So what does he say? The man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman, received, the woman responds in a similar way. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what's clear here is another set of consequences about their sin. Another way they try to hide from the truth about themselves is that they want to begin to attempt to shift the blame to someone else. The man and the woman, they do make a confession of sorts in the second half of their statements. They do say, I ate. But notice how they qualify it. At the beginning, right? They each attempt to mitigate their own sin by first pointing the finger at someone else. The man blames the woman. And he even goes so far to make a subtle indictment of God by describing the woman as, oh, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. The woman seems to get a little closer to the truth by saying the serpent deceived her. That's true, but it still feels like somewhat of an attempt to deflect Blame and responsibility away from the person where it belongs. What I'm so struck when I, when I read this section of God questioning the man and woman and their response is just how dramatically and how quickly their marriage has been transformed from a relationship of mutual love and care and trust to one where they would rather throw each other under the bus before they confess their sins against each other and against God and seek forgiveness and restoration. Again, just think about what we've already read about this relationship between Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. Consider this incredible scene in Genesis 2 where Adam is going to see his wife, his bride, for the first time. But what does he say? He's filled with delight. He says, this at last, bone of my bones, 
flesh of my flesh. But now after the fall, because of Adam's reluctance to confess his own sin, his bride is no longer the source of his delight. She's now the source of his problems. And of course, Eve is responsible for the sin just as much as Adam. But again, this is all part of Adam trying to shift responsibility away from himself for the mess and destruction of sin that he finds himself in. You can read these words in verse 12. Um, between the man and the woman and the responses to God is really the genesis of probably the first marriage fight we see in the scriptures. And we can think about this in our own lives, in our own marriages, our own relationships, relationships with each other. We see that the more things have changed, the more things really have stayed the same. What are our marriage conflicts about? They're usually about the same thing that the fir- our first parents fought about. Two people who would rather blame someone else rather than honestly confront and confess the brokenness of our sin and seek God's forgiveness and his grace. We see the same dynamic at work, right, in our own marriages and our own relationships. Adam's movement against his wife was less about his wife, and it was more about him feeling guilty and ashamed and fearful before God. So what this does is teaches us that in all our conflicts with your spouse or with anybody else, there's always a vertical dimension involved. Our conflicts with people often begin with our own movement away from God. That's where they always start. And they involve the spiritual battles that you've been drawn into completely apart from someone else. We deceive ourselves into thinking that other people are always our greatest enemy when all the while we ignore the spiritual battles that we fight inside of us. Our fear of exposure, our guilt, and the shame that we feel over our sin. Okay, I want to turn the corner now and talk about God's redemptive movement towards his people in the midst of their sin. We see kind of the mess of sin. We see the tragedy of it. Um, but now we're going to talk about what does God do in the face of all of these things to save and redeem his people. We've already seen how the first redemptive movement of God is for God to question his children because he wants to lead them to the truth about their sin and their need for his forgiveness. The man and woman deserved immediate judgment, right? It would have been completely just for God to enter the scene, hold trial, and declare them guilty as charged and to pass capital punishment. But instead we see God pursue them with his mercy and his grace. So this morning, for the rest of the sermon, I want to talk about two other redemptive movements that we see from God in our passage. First, I want to talk about God's decree of judgment and his promise of salvation. And then finally, at the end of our passage, we're going to talk about how God clothed the man and the woman. Okay, so first we see God's decree of judgment and his promise of salvation. So what does God do after he questions the man and the woman? Uh, He's going to speak directly to each of the parties involved in the sin of the fall. First to the serpent, uh, the woman, and then finally the man. So quickly, let's look at each of the things that he says to each of of these people. So first, he's going to declare judgment on the serpent. Look at what he says. He first tells the serpent, the symbolic representation of Satan and evil, that it is cursed above all livestock above and above all the beasts of the field. God proclaims the serpent that the serpent will eat dust all the days of its life. God's word of the serpent really come down to two things about God's work regarding how he makes war on evil. First, Satan's going to be humiliated. And second, Satan's going to be defeated. 
the Bible talks about dust in a variety of ways, and usually the connotation is someone is being severely humbled or severely defeated. You can see this in places like Psalm 72.7, where Solomon's going to pray for the success of the king, God's royal son, and he prays, May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. And then in verse 15, we're going to see God make one of the most important promises in all of the scriptures. The Lord God in verse 15 proclaims he's going to create this great conflict between the serpent and the woman and between the offspring or seed of the serpent and the offspring or seed of the woman. God mentions this, this conflict is going to be expressed through violence between the people of the serpent and the people of the woman. He says that the offspring of the woman will one day uh, be struck and the heel, but the offspring of the woman will have the upper hand and he'll bruise the head of the serpent. So the contrast here is really clear. Even though the seed of the woman will know the pain of combat with the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman will ultimately come out victorious against the serpent and his people by dealing the serpent a death blow. Many people since the early days of the church have viewed this verse in verse 15 as a first gospel of sorts because we ultimately understand this promise has been fulfilled for us in King Jesus and what King Jesus has done for us. God's word of the serpent is a curse on Satan, but it's also a promise of salvation. They're they're both come at the same time. It's a promise of life for his people. People of God, no matter how intense our fights are with the world and your flesh and the devil, we can always fight with our chin up. We always fight with our head held high because we know and trust God's promise that he's come to humiliate and defeat evil on your behalf through Jesus, God's promised seed of the woman. So we interpret everything in our own lives We interpret the nightly news. We interpret our entire world based on this incredible promise. We believe that Satan's doom was declared almost from the very moment that the battle on earth began. And we trust by faith that everything Satan and evil do in our world, everything they can do in our lives is really the attack of a dying being. A being whose defeat was promised long ago and whose fate was sealed over 2,000 years ago when King Jesus came to earth and he lived and he died and he rose again and he ascended to power at the hand of the, of, of the Father. And we trust by faith that Satan and sin's influence in our world has a limited number of days to do damage until King Jesus comes again and he forever banishes evil from our presence and all of God's creation. Listen to what one writer says about how Jesus fulfilled God's promise here in Genesis 3.15. I wish I was smart enough uh, to write something this beautiful. This is a, a writer named Warren Austin Gage. Listen to what he says. It was by the death of the last Adam that the serpent of old encountered death and the first Adam found life. The nails that pierced the feet of Christ would bruise the heel, but they would crush the head of the serpent. The last Adam wore the thorns of the first Adam, but by these wounds... He was healing his people. Christ knew the nakedness of Adam, but by this shame, he was clothing his people in righteousness. For the first Adam, the tree of knowledge brought death, but the last Adam knew death upon the tree bringing life. Adam had made a grave of a garden, but Christ would make a garden of a grave. 
All right, so what else do we read here in our passage? Um, God's going to speak next directly to the man or to the woman than the man. This is important for us to think about. We talk often about the curse of the fall when we talk about what God says to the man and woman. But we should note that technically speaking, the word cursed is actually only ever used with the serpent and the ground that the man and woman has been called to cultivate. I mean, there's obviously real judgment for the man and woman, but it's significant for us that we don't read the word curse associated with the man and woman. This is another way that we see God's grace and God's God's mercy being brought to Adam and Eve. When we consider the story of God's redemption, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that his curse on Satan, it's eternal. And that is good news for us. But we know that the curse on the ground is temporary. It will remain only for a particular time in human history and then be forever removed again when God fully inaugurates his new creation and he puts the finishing touches on new heavens and a new earth. Notice also there's a real sense of poetic justice, isn't there, in what he decrees um, to the man and the woman in verses 16 through 19. Think about the fact that Adam and Eve were made as God's king and queen over creation, his vice regents that are made to rule over God's creation in order to cultivate life. But we said last time we looked at this passage that in the fall, the kings and queens rebelled against their creator. They despised their birthright as God's chosen rulers. So God's decree now that their authority given to reign and rule over creation, he says it's going to be deeply frustrated. It's going to be misused in sinful ways. The man and woman, because of their sin, will seek to reign and rule over each other in harsh and rebellious ways instead of exercising their God-given roles in a gracious, loving way. Look at verse 16. Lots of ink spilled on uh, verses 16 and 17. We're told The woman is told that uh, her desire shall be for her husband. That's a little ambiguous for us to know what that means, but when we look at the rest of the scriptures, it's pretty obvious uh, what this is talking about. Just a chapter after our passage in, in Genesis 4, we read in God's address to Cain that in light of Cain's anger, he will be strongly tempted by sin. Notice what he says uh, to Cain. This is in uh, verse, uh, verse 7. He says to him that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So that tells this statement about um, the woman's desire being for her husband. This is not a, a good for. This is a bad for. This is a for that indicates now that she will fight against him. She will seek to harm him. Um, that their relationship will be broken. God also mentions in verse 16 how the man will seek to rule over her. Again, we can misunderstand what this means. This is not a statement against male headship and marriage, but it's a statement about how because of the entrance of sin, men now will seek to use their authority in sinful ways, in tyrannical ways, to harm women instead of love and care for them. Notice also um, God addresses the man in verses 17 and 19. Notice what he says to him uh, there. He mentions now that the ground itself it will rebel against Adam. So it will reward his hard label and sweat with thorns instead of fruit. In verse 19, we see God's ultimate word of judgment and his statement about Adam returning to the ground and becoming dust through the decay of death. This is a very powerful set of verses here because we see Satan's lie of Adam being able to escape death through disobedience to God's commands. 
it's come full circle now. And it's become painfully obvious that everything God promised would happen if Adam listens to Satan is now going to come true. Another part of what's said uh, to the man and woman is notice that um, suffering and frustration now are part of the human experience. Twice we see this word pain show up. This would have been a new word for Adam and Eve. Um, God tells the woman that now she's going to bring forth children in pain. He says in pain that the man will eat of the fruit of the ground all the days of his life. The idea in both of these statements is that God's people now will be unable to fulfill their good God-given mandates given to them in Genesis 1 and 2 without frustration, without the experience of futility. Our first parents were called to be fruitful and multiply, but God says now this joyful task will involve the pain of childbirth. The man was originally called to work and to keep the garden, but now God says in verse 17 through 19, this joyful task will involve working soil that will not always be fruitful. It will be a frustrating experience. And again, all of us understand what this means in so many ways. We understand that a fundamental part of living in a fallen world involves frustration, this taste of futility. We can easily think of lots of ways that we experience God's blessings, but we experience them in ways that are always are often marred with frustration and suffering. Our bodies get sick, and they can be damaged in ways that are irreversible. We experience the joy of, of new little life, beginning with a baby, only to go through the anguish of miscarriage. We enjoy the blessings of marital sexuality, only have the experience involve brokenness. We seek to enjoy God's good mandate of being fruitful and multiplying, only to discover the pain of infertility. Men can know the good, God-honoring blessing of being able to provide for a family, but we can also taste the pain of losing your job, experiencing the fear and anxiety that come with unemployment are not being able to provide enough. So it's clear in our passage, in summary, that human beings will now experience suffering for the first time as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And this is one of the hardest things of the Christian life, isn't it? The, the variety of times where we suffer, and it's not your fault. Because if it were your fault, it would be very easy to have to change the situation. I can repent of my sin, um, and things are going to be different. But unlike uh, Adam and Eve, we inherit a broken world the moment you come into existence. And again, in many ways, this is some of the hardest aspects of suffering to endure because you can't change it. So if the suffering in our lives often through this experience of futility is something that we can't change, what do we do with this? How, How do you respond to that? How do you endure that kind of futility. A few quick things here before we move on. People of God, we do not have a God who just looks coldly at your pain from a distance. We have the living God who took on flesh in God's Son. The one we've already seen has undergone living in a broken world. He knows what your pain is like. He knows what it's like to taste futility. We have a Savior who understands the effects of the fall far better than we do. Hebrews 5.7 tells us that in the days 
of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. There's no greater experience of futility than the sinless Son of God undergoing the painful injustice and shame and death of the cross. Our Savior took on a frail, finite body as a son of Adam, and he tasted God's ultimate judgment decreed to Adam, the sting and decay of death. And so he understands your pain. He sees your tears. He understands your loss. And in Jesus, we see that the path to resurrection and glory, it must take us through tears, through this experience of futility. And just as God declared to Eve that new life for the world was going to come through pain, we're following and looking to Jesus to know that the renewal of God's creation, it will come through experiences of futility. We look to Jesus to know that we can trust that God will use our experiences of pain and futility in order to fulfill his plan of humiliating and defeating evil in our lives and in the whole world. Okay, so that's God's first redemptive movement that we see. He gives this judgment on evil, and he promises this incredible promise of salvation. Let's look now at our, our final movement we see towards God in our passage Notice we see this in verse 21. We see that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. So this is the final movement of redemption. I want to talk about how God clothed um, Adam and Eve. And again, that probably looks like an insignificant detail. We read that and think, so what? They got a new outfit. Uh, But when you read the scriptures, you can see that throughout the Bible, um, clothes have a very powerful symbolic connotation um, that's really important. In the scriptures, you can see that often clothing is associated with redemptive love in a variety of ways. In the scriptures, being given clothing by God is often a symbol of him bestowing grace and dignity on guilty sinners. It's also significant because it refers to a new identity that people are given as well. So think about a few places quickly in the Bible that we see this kind of thing. In places like Zechariah 3, we see the prophet Zechariah is given this vision uh, the high priest of Israel, Joshua. And so Zechariah sees the scene where Joshua is standing before the Lord God, before the angel of the Lord, and before Satan himself. And as Satan accuses Joshua and proclaims his guilt, we're told that his guilt and shame are symbolized by Joshua's filthy garments, his dirty, nasty clothes that he wears in God's presence. Well, what does God do in this scene in Zechariah 3? We're told that he sends his angel to take away Joshua's filthy garments and he reclothes him with pure vestments. Then the angel tells Joshua that his iniquity has been taken away from him. Think about a famous story like the prodigal son. Uh, what's the climax of the story? It's when the son comes home, right? Do you remember some of the things that the father does? What's one of the things he does right away? He sees his sinful, rebellious son who probably was very raggedy looking and he gives him new clothes. Do you remember this? He says to his servant, quick, get the best robe and a new ring and new shoes for his feet. You think about the book of Revelation. Clothing plays a significant role in that book as well. In John's eschatological vision, he sees this enormous multitude of people uh, worshiping God at the consummation of God's redemptive plan at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to what he describes in this scene. This is Revelation 19. 
John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! The Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Other places you can see in the Bible how clothing is symbolic of a new identity that we're given. We see this in a variety of places in Paul's letters, places like Romans thirteen fourteen, where Paul tells the Roman church to put on the Lord Jesus. He tells the Galatians, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So here for Paul, a Christ-centered identity is described in terms of your clothing. It says something very important about who you really are. So in light of what the Bible says about all these things, we can see God's gracious action of clothing Adam and Eve. It was not about them simply having something new to wear to stay warm. No, it's a much bigger symbolic act that declared to them, He's the God of grace, the one who bestows dignity and honor on prodigals and sinners who turn to Him, the one who gives us a new identity. And the new identity given to the first man and woman, again, was an identity defined by the love and mercy of God. We see the same idea of a new identity in our passage in the fact that Adam actually renames his wife, Eve. She gets a new name, a name which indicates that she will be defined by life and not death. People of God, the beauty of the gospel is that it's a message that is constantly telling you who you really are. Satan works hard to try to get us to see ourselves through the lens of our sin, which only leads us to believe that guilt and shame are an essential part of who you truly are. But only by faith in God's work are we able to see through the lies of the evil one and trust that God's love tells me the truth about myself. What God proclaimed to our first parents in clothing them is the same thing we all desperately need to hear. In God's gracious action of clothing them, he was telling them that their own efforts to deal with their guilt and their shame were inadequate, right? They already had clothes, but God looks at their clothing that they made themselves and said, that's no good. You need what I can give you. God was telling that their own efforts to extinguish the voice of shame and guilt um, was not going to be productive in their lives. And we get the beautiful picture of atonement as well, right? Think about the fact that animals had to die, blood had to be spilled in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, in order for them to be forgiven and made right before God. And again, God's declaring to them that his work, his work of clothing us in the gospel is sufficient for us. God's outward action of reclothing Adam and Eve, again, it's symbolic of a much greater inward transformation that God will do in all of his people. A transformation from shame to glory. People of God, do you believe this today? That God in Christ has covered you so there's no guilt left for your sins? That you stand before the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth as someone who is loved? As someone who is forgiven despite all your weaknesses and your sins? That the work of the Gospel can take away your shame So you're set free to stop hiding and instead be a person who is honest, honest with God and honest with other people. Do you believe that God's work for his children in a garden long ago is the same work that you and I need? 
It's the same work we've all received through faith in Jesus. Do you believe today that our Lord and Savior, our King, has crushed Satan's head and the work of evil in your life, that evil can never triumph? Do you believe this today? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the work of King Jesus that he really has come to crush the work of Satan and evil. And Father, I pray that as um, your scriptures tell us, we would abound in hope because we're very sure of what Jesus has done for us. And we're sure that his work and his work alone has covered us and made us new people. Father, I pray that um, you would be with us now throughout the remainder of our service that as we um, eat Jesus' body and drink his blood, that you would strengthen us and reassure us that Jesus has done something for us um, that we desperately need, and that, Father, in him and him alone, uh, we can begin to be the men and women you've called us to be. Would you do all these things we pray in Jesus' name? Amen.